The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Welcome to the Climate Risk podcast, a series of discussions in which we explore what climate risk means for public policy, security, public health and decision making, and how best to get that message across. I'm Amanda Carpenter, and for the second podcast in our series, I'm joined by two expert climate communicators to explain just how we can communicate the risks and realities of climate change. Freya Roberts is a former climate science writer and currently manages projects for the UCL Climate Action Unit a group using insights from psychology and neuroscience to address the human barriers to climate action. She's a Climate Risk Communications Fellow of the COP26 Universities Network and author of Communicating Climate Risk Handbook. Freya, welcome and thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My second guest, Professor Liz Bentley, is Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society, which is the learned and professional body for weather and climate in the UK. As a charity, its mission is to advance the understanding of weather and climate and its application for the benefit of all. Liz, a warm welcome to the podcast and thanks for being with us. Hi, Amanda. Yeah, and thank you for the invitation as well. Liz, I wonder if I could start with you, as you have a distinguished career in communicating about weather and climate across a range of roles at the Met Office and the BBC and now in your current job. What do you see as the biggest challenge in getting a clear message about climate risk across to the general public? I guess one of the biggest challenges is is the balance in communicating facts clearly that don't uh, scare people, uh, you know, causing climate anxiety in people because they just think the problem is so big, so complex. Uh, that they just can't do anything about it. Uh, But getting the balance that we also recognise that it's a really important topic, you know, the biggest challenge of our time. And you also don't want the the audience to become apathetic about the whole process as well. So it's getting that balance right. So you can give the facts, clear facts, um, uh, but and really just to try and give the audience uh, an opportunity to encourage them, to to inspire them, I think, to take action so that they, they leave that conversation knowing that there's something they can do about it. And would you say that generally our awareness of climate change and the risks associated with climate change is on the increase, is the same as it always was? I mean, I guess I'm assuming that there's been a, a, a rise in interest because of COP26, but but where, where does that sit in the kind of range of things that people are thinking about and are worried about? Oh, yeah, I mean, the conversation around climate change has you know grown exponentially. I, I've been working in meteorology for over 25 years and we've We've spoken within our peer groups about climate change, but with that engagement with a wider kind of general public audience, it has grown enormously. And that's partly down to, you know, whenever we get an extreme weather event, the conversation around is this down to climate change? Are we going to see more of the same in a kind of warming climate? So people are asking those questions. The the editorial policy has shifted, I would say, in the last five years. So I used to get involved with interviews where the, the question was, is climate change real? And you'd be put up against some sort of climate denier to have to have that argument. That has pretty much disappeared now. I still get you know the odd climate skeptic who wants to have a debate about it. But the the conversation has moved on and we're very much now talking about what are the impacts of climate change and what can I and what can we do about it? That question that you just mentioned, Liz, um, what can I do about it is one that we hear so, so often in our team. And it's this it's it's this sense that 
I'm aware of the risk. Lots of people are aware of the risks of the threats. This isn't this isn't new. This isn't a new news story. This has been the you know the the common news story for such a long time. And, and they're saying, oh, I know it's a big deal, but what can I do about it? And they they feel this sense of 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 not knowing how to act or how to do something about it. And and as you say, sometimes that's because people have been um, driven to a point of of feeling kind of despair or paralysis by the by the scale of the risks we're facing with climate change. But um, we we really have to move beyond taking people just you know giving them the facts so that they feel alarmed about it and say how do we translate that into into enabling people to to act on something because it's that agency building in people that's that's really important that communicators can can help to to develop in people. So not just um, thinking about um telling them what to do but, but helping them work out what's what's the right thing for them to do in their professional circumstance or or in their personal lives um we really need to play a bit of an enabling role and and one of the ways that that my team kind of advocates doing that is by telling these action-based stories about climate change so basically there's an idea that we we learn really well from what others do we're kind of we're social creatures and and this social learning is a really really powerful tool and so um, one of the stories that we can tell as, as communicators talking about climate change is, is about success stories of other people acting, about how they did, how they brought it into their, their profession or into their field, how they made it kind of um, mainstream part of their everyday, the, the architect who brings climate change into the way they design buildings or, or the teacher who, uh, you know, constructs scientific experiments that, that relate to climate change. And really people want to feel energized and, and see ways that they can do something about it. And we need to be presenting them with stories like that, not just stories of here's the, the impending hazard coming at you. Um, there's so much kind of interesting psychology to how we handle the, the climate risk subject area with people. And we really need to plan that so that we think, What's our end goal here? Is it just to communicate the facts to people or is it to actually get them to take action to, to deal with the incoming incoming risks? And, and if we want to do that, then what's the best way? Because presenting ever more information, ever more facts, well, is that getting us any closer to, to mm -hmm. people really making the fundamental changes we need to deal with climate risks? So. And I agree, Freya, absolutely. It's about telling those stories, making it relevant to the audience that you're, you're talking to. And... And so when we speak to the public, I think, you know, it's about understanding what what is important to them, what, what's their background, what's their culture, where do they live, what's what, what are the local issues on their doorstep? And I guess, again, just thinking about how, you know, because we're now seeing climate change playing out in front of us, we're seeing extreme weather events happening, not just around the world. So climate change isn't something that's happening, you know, many thousands of miles away for affecting somebody else. It's happening here on our doorstep. And it's not something that's going to happen in two or three decades. It's happening now. It's making that clear, relevant kind of connection with the audience. And there are more, many more examples of, of you know, weather, extreme weather events, the impact that climate change is having now that helps us to tell those stories that maybe we didn't have 10 years mm. ago. Yeah, we've got, we're starting to get a, a bigger diversity of stories, but I think we've got, we've got such a long way to go to, to bring about more stories that show how people have taken action because we can feel really powerless to take action and, and having examples of, of, of where someone else has succeeded when they've tried is, is empowering and, and puts us in that positive mindset of being able to do something. But I've, I really like what you just said about um, 
you know, relating the issue to, to the things that people already care about. And when we do this in a, a think about climate risk in a professional context, um, we try and work out what it is that our, the, the people we're working with, what do they already care about? And we call this their risk currency. So this is like, this is the idea that, that, that a, say a policymaker or um, a professional expert in one area will have the things that they already care about. So maybe that's economic growth or that's jobs or that's migration. They have these kind of key issues that they're already concerned about. And if we make sure that we understand what our audience already cares about, we can relate climate change and climate risk to that thing. And it helps them to really get the issue in a very kind of intuitive way. Um, it, it resonates with them much better if we understand what what's their language, what how do they already think, what do they already care about. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of risk currencies concept, and I think there's probably a parallel for for the public. Um, you know, when you're talking to them about weather or climate, you know, that's something that lots of people can care about already, and that they mm. can feel and that they can visibly see and they can engage with. And it's mm. it's just that kind of climate change can and climate risks can feel really abstract. That terminology you know, a, a, a one in a hundred year event, or what does that, like, what do I feel about a one in a hundred year event? I don't, I don't know. Or, you know, a, a storm yeah. becoming 10% worse. It's all a bit too abstract to evoke, evoke a response in me. But yeah, well. I, I wonder if sometimes the language is almost a barrier. And I fear sometimes that we might be in, in the infamous echo chamber because, you know, obviously having a focus on climate, you know, this is your area of research, Freya and, and, and Liz, this is what you, you do for a living. Um, I'm curious as to whether or not we can use, whether language sometimes puts off the general public. That's a horrible mm. phrase, but you know what I mean? People who are not mm. necessarily as well informed or interested or have had a chance to, to think about this. And, and if we can use language in a more enabling way, I guess that's one part. And I guess the other thing is, do you think that we are only talking to a very small percentage of the population? I mean, how does this play out against all of the other issues that people are having to think about, you know, whether it's the rising price of food or the continuing impact of the pandemic or whether or not they can get their kids into to the local school or, you know, where does it sit for people? So is language the right, are we using the right language to get to them? And if we are, how high up their list of priorities is it really? Yeah, can I can I start with that one? I mean, again, we are very fortunate. I'm very fortunate that I work in the topic of weather and climate because, you know, particularly in the UK, but around the world, we love to talk about the weather. We do. And, you know, <laughs> we're, we're kind of obsessed by it, aren't we? And we'll speak to strangers by it. So so it is a topic of conversation. It's, it's easy to have that conversation. People tend to have a passion and an interest in the weather. And more and more people are kind of, you know, they'll, they'll see something happening and the question will be, is this because of climate change or are we going to see more of this because of climate change? So you can have that conversation. It starts about the weather because that's a kind of, you know, a, a topic of conversation with with anybody. But it can naturally lead on to, to climate change quite easily and often does move in that direction. So I think I think there's a common ground there to start that conversation. But but you're right, you can quite easily turn people off. Yeah, and again, just thinking about um you know, within the science community, we'll use the, the term uncertainty a lot. And we use that to, to kind of recognize uh, how much we understand about something. Whereas when we mention uncertainty to a general public audience, they see that as a negative connotation. So it's about how much we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And we tend to use risk. We use the word risk much more with a general public audience than we do with, you know, the word uncertainty. Because I think the general public 
understand risk. They're dealing with risks all the time, whether that's their health risk, their security risk. So they can they can relate to that much more than the word uncertainty. So we have to be very careful as scientists um, that we use the right terminology that resonates with that audience. And mm. so uh, absolutely right. And But I do think there is an appetite there. And I, I mean, I, I, I was uh, looking at the Ipsos Murray do a, a regular study asking that very question in the UK. What is the biggest concern for you at the moment? And it varies from month to month. And at the moment, you know, the biggest issue is around COVID, you know, no surprise, but the economy. And, you know, that's mm. that's shot right up in the last kind of couple of months. But there is a section on, on the environment and climate change. And what you notice is those peaks come when we have extreme weather events. So you start to see a real interest in the public when there's been a big flooding event or, you know, some some severe heat wave event that's happened. And not just in the UK, but typically, I guess it's a UK focus. And COP26 had the biggest peak. So there was a heightened interest as we went up to COP26 and during those two weeks as well. So it's not just weather, extreme weather events. It's when there's there's conversation around climate as well. So it, it, it does change. It chops and change. But but weather and climate, I think. Think he's up there near the top, if not sometimes at the top uh, mm. of, of you know the concerns that people have. Mm. Yeah. And, and you don't have any anxiety about putting weather and climate in the same sentence because I know lots of people have said that oh you know we're not talking about the weather we're actually talking about the climate and they are different things. But but you're very comfortable putting them together. Yeah, I, I would not separate them. Um, okay. So they're, they're the same thing in a sense, but just on different timescales. And climate change to me is playing out in the weather. So the two are very intrinsic, you know, joined together. And for me, I mean, one, when we when we when we deliver our climate change communication training, the first slide says, what is the difference between weather and climate? So let's just go back to some basics and think about that. And very simply, climate is what we expect to happen. It's it's climatology over longer periods of time, typically over 30 year periods. And weather is what you get. And a lovely analogy that we use is you could imagine a person's wardrobe, all the clothes within their wardrobe is the climate. So if you lived in the Arctic, your your wardrobe would be full of winter clothes pretty much all the time. And you would hardly have any T-shirts and shorts. If you lived in the tropics, it would be the opposite. Um, but the weather is what you pick out of the wardrobe and wear today. Really nice analogy just to understand that we have climate, we have these kind of broad areas of the, the, the weather that we live in, but the weather is, is just, you know, can be within that wardrobe and sometimes even outside of that wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes multiple items from that wardrobe on the same day. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's really, really helpful. And I think that's given us a really clear kind of framing. And, and Freya, you were saying that actually... There's an art to this, isn't there, about storytelling, and it's trying to get that dare I use that word that narrative, that that essence of the story yeah. across to people, in a way that they can relate to their own lives. But but what really struck me about what you said is the idea that you're trying to prompt action. So this isn't just storytelling for the sake of telling stories. It's it's storytelling with a purpose. Yeah, storytelling. Well, I think as as communicators and researchers in the field of climate change, ultimately we all want to be part of the solution to the problem you know um that's a, a massive motivator for loads of people working in this field and so we need to not just think how do I get my my research across but how do I use my research to affect the change that we want and and there's this kind of idea that that scientists have a bit of a social contract to to deliver good for society with the research that they do so um I think we we kind of keep that in our minds as we think about communicating uh risks and 
and my team really thinks about how 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 humans respond when we when we talk about climate risk because it's so important to not switch people off to not disengage them the the opposite of that is not to just make them accept it willingly it's actually to to trigger them to act i mean it's quite frightening some of this isn't it i mean that's the danger yeah. isn't it and some of this just goes in that this is too big for me to think about box yeah, for a lot definitely. of people i mean you know if we have a huge storm and and, it, and a huge storm of the kind that happens once every 100 years i guess there's a danger of thinking well it happened this year so it's not going to happen next year You know, so we we sometimes don't need to understand how to measure that analogy of once in a hundred years. But there's also just it's just too big for me to think about. It's too complicated. I can't deal with it. You know, I can cope with the weather on my doorstep, but I can't deal with climate. And more importantly, there's nothing I can do as an individual anyway. So how do you manage that really tricky balance of of giving people enough information to make them aware that actually we're on the edge of, you know, what some Mm. have called an existential crisis? Um, but not scare the living daylights out of them so they don't take any action. I mean, that's a really yeah, tricky one, isn't it? I think so. So imagine if you had uh, the population uh, or a group of people and they're going to broadly fit into two camps. Some people will already be really concerned about climate change. And for them, if you present them with information about, about the risks, uh, that will get that that group to act. That will be a powerful motivator for them. But for the majority of people, um, the people who are worried about COVID and you know the economy and, and jobs and food prices. Climate climate change is not going to be their their number one priority, and so they're not solely driven and motivated by it. So, presenting those people with with scary facts actually doesn't tend to motivate them to take action. Presenting climate risks can be useful for that to motivate action in that group who already really care those those strong advocates, the professionals in that area. But that's not the bulk of the population that you know. Lot, there's lots of other things going on for them. And so with that group, we might need a different communications approach. And it's not just presenting risks, but it's about helping those people find a way to um, convince themselves of, of the need to take action on climate change and that they've got these opportunities and the ability to do so. And we call this this idea kind of um, that our actions drive our beliefs. So our, the kind of more conventional wisdom might be that if you if you build someone's knowledge and, and they believe that there's an issue, then, then that empowers them to do something about it, that their belief drives their action. But really that only seems to work in, in groups who are already very passionate and already keep climate as their number one concern in their life. The people for whom it ranks lower down, really to get them to the point of, of taking action on it, we have to we have to let them have this process of, of self-persuasion and, and, and self-reinforcing where they take take their initial action. You know, maybe they give up um, meat on a Mondays and maybe they do it without much conviction at first. Maybe it's just that, that very first step that they go, do you know what, I'll try this. And in the action and in the process of doing it, they convince themselves and, and they, they make themselves aware of the reasons why you'd maybe want to have a little bit less meat in your diet and and they may that may lead them then to take another action. You know, maybe they they stop driving to the, to the school run and they walk, or you know that that self reinforcing um, method of getting people to act can often be a much kind of deeper and more fundamental um, motivator of of the behavioural kind of changes that we need to see as part of addressing the risks that that climate change poses. So that's a sometimes a challenging um, concept, but one that we've actually found in reality that. That, that giving those scary statistics and, and that ever more information, you know, that that will motivate people to change because mm. that that hasn't really happened for the, for the large bulk of the population in, in reality. And, 
And so there's a different approach, surely. But I wonder yeah. if you have any experience of that, Liz. Yeah, I, I was going to say so, some people will make the change for a very different reason. So they might do it because they can save money. And obviously, with the economical impact at the moment, if if they can actually reduce their energy bill or reduce the, the cost of you know the, the supermarket bill or whatever by making some some changes. There's a there's an environmental benefit, but actually they're doing it for a different reason. The same with the health benefits. You know, people might decide they, they're going to walk or cycle because they want to get fit rather than because they, they, they see us. So there may be other incentives. And, and also, I think people tend to do things in a, in a kind of community way. So if their next door neighbor's doing things, there's like trying to keep up with the Joneses and doing the same. Or maybe something's happening in the, the town or village that they live and they want to be part of that. They want to feel like they're part of a community. So the incentives for doing these change may be very different from actually, I want to do this because I want to help save the planet. I'm doing this for, for other reasons. But the outcome is, is exactly what you want. So that we might, and quite often when we try and communicate these things, it is about trying to find those those triggers, those things that will actually change, uh, you know, change behaviour, lead to an action that you know may not be due to the fact that someone wants to to make a, a significant change to their carbon footprint or an environmental impact. There, there are other reasons as well, and I think that that's really important to understand. And 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 again, it's about understanding your audience and what's relevant to them, and and being able to try and just empower them enough to be able to take action so they again we, we talked about this earlier they don't feel like it's too big a complex a problem to solve they can do things step by step as you say freya one one step at a time and you know every step is helping it's it's mm -hmm. limiting the amount of carbon carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere so every step will make a difference mm. and not just you, not just the sum of those individual actions but the way it changes the way we feel about the issue so not just you know walking once a week um is is you no know, half as impactful as walking twice a week but but through the act of walking more and more often you spend the time thinking about why you're walking and and, and what other actions you might want to take that that contribute to that effort of, of reducing your footprint or, yeah. or whatever it is. And, and there's behavioural change, and that's really important. And I think the Committee on Climate Change said that about 60% to, to, in order to reach our net zero targets, about 60% is going to have to come from some sort of behavioural change. We can't just rely on technology. If you think about, we, we've managed in the UK to reduce um, you know, our carbon emissions by about 40, 45%. And that we we as humans haven't really been impacted by that. It's purely because we've we've turned away from coal and gone to renewables. And, you know, we still get electricity coming through uh, to, to our houses and our businesses. We've not had to do any physical, but we are going to have to make some real significant changes ourselves. We can't just rely on technology. And that's where I think communication around this is really important because we can't just wait for somebody else to sort the problem out. We have to make some fundamental changes ourselves. Yeah, and some of that reduction, though, is because is, is we've been offshoring our emissions quite effectively isn't it i mean you know we've offshored a lot of our manufacturing and so we don't you know we don't count we the don't emissions count. that make with with manufactured goods that come into the to the uk so so there's a certain amount and, and i know it's a concern of yours is liz that, that we don't greenwash here but there is a certain amount of interpreting and placing you know data in certain contexts and telling certain stories um i wonder do you think that the 
impacts of the pandemic, quite apart from all of the other impacts we talk about, the kind of social impacts where people have become more aware of their environment and the climate and the need for, you know, we've all become more aware of the need for green spaces and a healthy, healthy outdoor um, area to be in. But do you think the one of the impacts of the, of, of the pandemic has been the kind of rise of the scientist, if I can call that? Mm. Do you feel that there's a greater expectation and understanding from the general public now that when a scientist says something, we will we will be more willing to listen and we'll be more willing to, 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 to believe what they're telling us? Or have we become, you know, dare I say it, kind of fatigued by our science <laughs> colleagues? <laughs> I think there's a lot we can learn from the communication around COVID-19, uh, things that have worked and things that haven't worked. So, um, you know, again, we 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 expect to see a scientist put forward to speak alongside a politician or on a news story. We expect that now because that that is the person who can speak with authority around that particular topic. We also have all become experts in the R number or lateral flow testing, you know, which two, three years ago, if you'd have asked anybody on the street, they wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. So so we've suddenly raised the we've educated the audience we've had to educate them because we want to you know we want to get messages across and when a scientist talks we now put graphs up all the time you know if i'd have spoken to an audience of people five years ago i said just avoid using graphs you want to use visual other visuals but but we, we get used to just showing graphs all the time now so so there's definitely kind of steps forward things that we have learned about the communication that, that's taken place around covid the role of science and again, we noted that at COP26, you know, the science is front and centre in, you know, in, in when we're setting targets to actually uh, limit climate change. The science is there and it's so important. And the role of scientists as a communicator is important. And again, that, that's been around for a while, but I think it has it has lifted onto another level in, in recent years. Yeah. And I think another thing that the COVID kind of um, experience and, and the public's engaging with with COVID and the news and scientists on the news has been this, um, you know, reinforcing of a scientist as a as a trusted and trusted authority on facts, which they maybe haven't been able to feel that they've got from other sources from, you know, a, a political sphere or, or elsewhere that they they want that kind of credible, authoritative person telling them the, the facts of, of what's happening um, day to day and the data and the numbers and things like that. And it's been um, really interesting as a kind of reflection to see it's not just the facts that we're presented with, but it's it's who presents them and what authority they have and what trust we place in them. And uh, it's it's this kind of social element of facts mm. um, because, it, you know, we don't we don't just see a fact on a page and it magics itself into our brains. We see a fact, we have to interpret it using our brains and our brains are basically like a social filter. So, you know, even with a climate change fact or, or a COVID fact, we, we see it, but we have to interpret it and to, to get it to kind of internalize it into ourselves. So we're always applying these, these social filters. And um, one of those things might be, you know, do we trust the person saying it? What are they getting out of, of you know, giving me this 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 piece of information or this fact and that's been you know really interesting to observe with with covid and and having s scientists up alongside you know uh, given parity with with politicians and the r number in particular has been like such an interesting case study and it's actually prompted our team to to start a new project um where we're basically going to be trying to create a metric that's a bit like the r number but for climate change mm. so the r number probably seemed like a really confusing concept to lots of people before COVID hit. 
um, I wouldn't have known what the R number was and uh, my colleagues who are statisticians probably would have, but, you know, the rest of my household wouldn't. So, but that's become something that that people can talk about kind of in the supermarket or, you know, on public transport. People can can relate to this this metric that they'd never even heard of a few years ago. And my team is trying to to do this project to work out, is there a similar metric we can now um, produce that evaluates kind of climate risk in the same way? Can we give people a, a, a tangible thing that they can relate to and say, you know, in if there's an extreme weather event, you know, how much was this a, a product of climate change or how much worse was this made as a result of climate change? Because we might not have thought that an R number could be that powerful, but it actually has been an incredible communication tool for for people to understand, okay, when it hits this threshold, we have to take more stringent measures because that means we're we're into sort of catastrophic, um, you know, unraveling of, of the impacts of, of COVID. And we have to bring it back below this threshold that we can tolerate. So I think that's been a really, really interesting kind of observation from, from the COVID experience. And I, I agree, Freya. So lots of positives we can learn from COVID-19. I guess one of the negatives is misinformation. And we've seen that played out with COVID-19, haven't we, with, you know, facts that have no scientific backing being kind of shared across communities and, and the, the lack of take-up in vaccinations, for example, from certain certain groups. And we have exactly the same issue with climate change and climate risk and you know that is a challenge that and that that's a growing challenge i think for us uh, you know greenwashing we mentioned it earlier but you know is becoming much more prevalent than it ever has done before mm-hmm. there's a lot of organizations that are jumping on the green bandwagon claiming to be you know eco-friendly when you know realistically they're doing very little if anything at all mm-hmm. uh, and and you know that's for the, for the general public, they see, oh, well, so-and-so is sorting it all out. I don't have to do anything. So, we, you know, we have to be really careful uh, in, in how we uh, clamp down, you know, address any any areas where there's misinformation and, and address the greenwashing issue, which I think is becoming a, a much bigger problem. And I think possibly even the re-emergence of the climate sceptic. And I'm thinking about what's happening in our politics, particularly in kind of UK Westminster politics, where we've got the rise of those who are saying that the net zero targets aren't realistic and we shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, it's not a problem for now. We can think about it later. We seem to have sort of, you know, allowed some of those dissenting voices to come back to the fore and they they, they seem to be gaining some traction. So there's quite, an, you know, it, it's that constant it's constant, if you like, battling against, you know, making sure people have got the facts that we're not frightening people, but equally we're not letting mm. the sceptical voices become too loud. It's quite a minefield to, to navigate through, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, again, there are probably fewer people out there who directly deny climate change is happening anymore. There still are some, but we, we call the group. Uh, lukewarmers who they will start <laughs> off saying you know climate change is happening but it's not as extreme as it's going to be or it's going to be something that happens so, you know, so there, there's a they, they they don't deny climate change um, but they will they'll try and slow the progress they'll have some rationale they'll they'll home in on one area of uncertainty and build that into well if that's wrong then the whole thing must be wrong and and that has become much more prevalent i, I think in the last few years yeah it's mm. like a new form of denial isn't it in in a in a weird way and it's i was thinking i was reflecting on this when i watched the netflix film don't look up because i watched it with my with my family with my mum and my dad and my mum's response basically watching you know being presented with these scary facts was uh 
oh God, this is so overwhelming. Um, surely it won't be that bad. You know, it, they're, they're, they're hamming it up for, for effect and, and, you know, it won't actually be this extreme. And there was this sort of like willingness on her part to want to deny that it was going to be as bad or as urgent or as serious as, as you know, the, the storyline led you to believe because that was the only thing that felt kind of comfortable for her to be able to accept. And denial for some people will be about their, you know, their their interest. You know, it might make financial sense for them to deny climate change or to to play mm-hmm. it down. But for some people, denial is a response that comes out of being so fearful about it or mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. concerned by it that the only way they can kind of internalize it and deal with it is to to tell themselves, like, oh, it wasn't real. It was just a film. Um, that's not what real life will be like. I'm sure we'll we'll get a heads up when it's coming and we'll do something about it. And Denial is such an interesting thing to to see how it's evolved in in the way that we all react to climate change. And I also wanted to pick up on that polarization that that you've you've picked up on because I think you're right. We're seeing less and less people being overt, you know, overtly saying no, there's no such thing as climate change. We don't need to do anything about it. But there's still a lot of polarization about what we do do about it, and and that's what we're seeing in in Westminster politics as well. Is that you know who who decides when we take action or or what those steps are that we make. And, and we're going to continue to face, you know, polarisation as we deal with climate risks and, and, and climate change itself. And people will continue to be divided about the best way to act or how urgently we need to act, how much we need to invest, how, how quickly this transition to net zero needs to happen. And so polarisation has always been part of this sector, but it's it's now sort of shifted from the like, uh, it's real, it's not real camp into the, mm. we need to do something about it now or, we can we can wait and wait and see, which is mm. again another theme that we saw in, in the Don't Look Up film, which <laughs> yeah, is yeah. Was and there's very another, interesting. There's another whole group as well, isn't there? There's the uh, particularly young people. I'm thinking mm. about you know the students that you must see and the young people that you see through your organisation list, who who are fully aware of the risks of climate change, but who are so burdened by the anxiety of thinking about it. Who so they don't they're not in denial at all. They just haven't got the emotional intellectual capacity to to cope with that alongside all the other things that they've they've been coping with so I'm thinking about you know that you know the infamous sort of 20 somethings who've come through the tail end of the pandemic you know the economic recession when they were young people at school the pandemic you know rising house prices they're looking at the world and saying and now you've given us climate change you know how much more do you think we can cope with so I should imagine they're a group who are not denying but who perhaps putting it to one side and saying I just can't deal with this at the moment I need to deal with me and being young and growing up and finding a home and a job and a family and things. So, so they're a difficult group to communicate with, aren't they? Because they're informed and intelligent and aware, but, mm. but not promoted to action perhaps because they just don't feel they can. Yeah. So I think there's probably two camps here as well. There's a group that, um, you know, are, are anxious and, you know, scared and, and again, just feel like they, they, they can't, they can't take action because it's too big a complex a problem. There are others who I think are just very frustrated. So they 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 understand the problem. They understand that there are solutions to the problem and are just frustrated that society is not acting fast enough to make a change. And that frustration, I think, is uh, comes out. But again, I, I saw a recent study. I think it might have been Ipsos again, actually, and it was around COP26, uh, looking at that younger generation and asking the question, 
Um, and again, it highlighted that frustration, but it also highlighted that a lot of young people don't have that conversation with their peers. And that could be down to the fact that they aren't as educated as they, they ought to be on the subject. So they're aware of climate change and it's a big complex. And But actually the science and the really understanding so that they don't feel confident having those conversations with their peers because they just don't have enough. And something we've been doing at the Royal Meteorological Society is working in schools to really you know, really improve climate literacy. So, you know, our aim is every child comes out of school fully climate literate, can engage with those conversations, can, you know, make decisions, their own personal decisions, because they're informed to do that. And I do feel there's a lot of young children who are switched off. And and so it, it comes back, I think, I mean, it, it's great you mentioned Freya Don't Look Up and, you know, it's great to have films and programs or content that reaches very different audiences. Climate change often comes out on the news channel or in documentaries. It mm. doesn't appear on soap operas and, and Love Island. And it's not reaching those audiences that, you know, we really want to reach. It talks to a group of people who are probably already, you know, bought into the, the climate change. And that's the next challenge, I think, for us as climate communicators is, you know, we, we've got we've got a platform and we have got an opportunity to talk, but it's reaching those audiences mm. that are hard to reach. And, you know, I really want to see everything every program every bit of content whether it's something to do with you know i don't know football or it, it focuses on climate change there's an element of climate change across it and it's not just something that we talk about separate from everything else yeah i think that would be a fantastic ambition and and, and a challenge for climate communicators but one certainly worth rising to um there's extraordinarily interesting debate thank you both and, and conversation thank you both so much i just I wanted to sort of close a bit by asking you, Fran, I mean, you've written the book, you've written the kind of handbook. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just give us a sort of example? You talked about stories, but could you just give us a kind of, you know, a, a kind of concrete example of, of, of what that looks like and some of the things that, or, or is the book more about a kind of, you know, forgive me, I haven't read it, uh, uh, you know, hints and tips and how to do it. Yeah. What's the sorts of things people will get if they dive into your, into your handbook? Yeah, so just to refresh, this was a handbook that we produced um, ahead of COP26, and it's about practical tips, essentially, for um, people working in the climate space for how to communicate climate change. And it's really, really straightforward stuff. So there's a section in there about the writing skills that you'd want to employ if you're producing some written content for your audience. And those are kind of hacks that I learned when I was doing science journalism and science writing about, you know, getting getting the message across right from the, the beginning, this, this, this idea of kind of an inverted pyramid where you put your most important facts at the top and then you explain them in the subsequent paragraphs. And there were things around the use of language and uh, sentence structure. So, so there was kind of some, some English language skills there, which can really help your audience to, to get your message. Um, there was some there's some insights in there that that we've touched on today about about speaking to the risks that your audience already cares about about um, words that can be confusing for people like like uncertainty as as Liz described where it can mean one thing to one audience and and something else to another so there's these really practical tips and hints for if you're going to be doing communication um, so that's what's in the book but you asked also about these stories about action. And so we have that that's not what this book does. It doesn't, this handbook doesn't give you like a, a library of stories, but I, I could tell you about, you know, an example that we have in one of our projects, which is we 
we took a group of um, journalists. So this was in 2021. We took a group of journalists and we said to them, we want to train you up so that you can bring climate change into your profession, into the writing that you already do, so that you can tell stories of people in your local area um, doing, taking action, doing the doing. And so we basically, you know, we didn't change their, their roles at all, but we just gave them skills that allowed them to bring climate action local stories about climate change into the job that they already do and to be able to tell those stories as part of their normal you know reporting on on daily events so they they some of them were bloggers or they were they worked for for regional newspapers and things like that so we are really trying to take people to a place where it becomes embedded in what they already do so that's kind of the idea of of action-based storytelling um and that's alluded to in the in the handbook I produced. It's also um, based on a paper that one of my colleagues, Krista Mayer, wrote, which we'll put the link to in the in the podcast notes as well. Uh, and that kind of explains the stories of of why this social learning from others is is so powerful, and why we really need to be able to understand how climate change fits in our professional context and and our our sense of the place where we live and where we belong. Uh, as well so thank you yeah. so much that really embodies what you were calling for I think Liz doesn't it I mean you know whether mm-hmm. you're whether you're a, a journalist on a newspaper or a football commentator we we need climate and climate change and an awareness of it embedded into our daily lives and our daily conversation whoever we are and wherever we're speaking so uh, fascinating thank you both so much it's been really really interesting to talk to you and and to have that insight and for me particularly to clear up that weather climate conversation which <laughs> has, has always bothered me so it's a huge thank you to to you Liz and and thank you Freya and we will put links to the handbook and to the documents and the Ipsos Mori survey and 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 also kind of your journal articles as well we'll put those all in the podcast notes so people will be able to follow up on that so very big thank you to you both for, for being with us today no problem thank you thank you for having us thank you you've been listening to the climate risk podcast brought to you by the COP26 universities network Do visit the website where you can download previous episodes and subscribe to this series to ensure you never miss a future episode. The podcast is supported by Grantham Institute at Imperial College and by Cambridge Net Zero. So our thanks to them. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 